Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me is my co-host, Alan. Hey there. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we have our very first two-time guest to the show. Uh, you may remember her from episode 102, but more importantly, you may remember her from her amazing musical career. Joining us today is Jennifer Knapp, recording artist, advocate, author, and newly graduated divinity student, dare I say theologian. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, my pleasure to be here, gentlemen. So last time we talked, uh, you were in the midst of your Masters of Divinity, right, from Vanderbilt? Uh- Actually, I have a master's in theological studies. Okay. All right. That's it. So, yeah, uh, I, it would have been impossible for me to think about doing the divinity degree at, at Vanderbilt. It's a three-year degree. And so at the MTS is a, a two-year program. And, oh, my gosh, is it like <laughs> – what is 365 times two? It was brutal. <laughs> but it was great at the same time. My, my brain was exploding much of the time. So I'm glad to be back in a, a, a few months out of the, into the summer. So I'm a little bit more relaxed. <laughs> right, right. So what, what initially drew you to want to get that, that degree? Uh, part of it was, you know, part of it is just like my personal enjoyment of understanding uh, Christianity. I mean, I- I've always been a big proponent of history and understanding the trends of where Christianity has been and where it's going. Like that, that to me was a- always really helpful when I started reading authors and history and other th- you know, uh, quote unquote, the fathers of theology um, it really helped me understand that it was like the gateway drug, basically, to help me understand that the Christianity that I was experiencing wasn't necessarily always the way that it had been. And it also was like I was really intrigued for what that meant for our future. So I think on a personal level, like that's kind of where I started. Um, but obviously, in the last you know 10 years since my own coming out, I've been doing a lot of uh, LGBTQ advocacy, and I really felt a sense of responsibility for knowing the skill set and understanding how theology works, um, not just in every day, which, you know, I think we don't often give credit to the average Christian for being an everyday theologian. Obviously, we have our own thoughts about what, what we think about God, and we, what, you know, we put our scripture in there and our experiences, but I also wanted to be able to, to understand like I said, kind of combining the history and understanding the way that we work with theology in terms of uh, developing our own orthodoxy, what it means to push against that orthodoxy and what it means, um, you know, in terms of our tradition, especially I think right now when when so many of us are kind of resisting a little bit uh, or a lot <laughs> the things that we've been taught, but not necessarily seeking to be unfaithful to the tradition itself. So I I wanted to get into that. And I was was definitely a fruitful experience to have gone through. At the risk of sounding, I guess, a little bit nerdy, um, I get excited when other people go (laughs) study theology. And uh, I know that like in my own experience, going to seminary, people don't realize how much reading there is. (laughs) You said that, you know, your brain. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think my last semester I read close to 30 whole books, and that doesn't count 
the, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of pages that I read of theologians as well, you know, contemporary as well as, you know, some works that were hundreds of years old. And yeah, there's a certain point where your brain really starts to explode. You don't realize just how much reading it takes. Like people warn you going into grad school that it's reading intensive, but particularly in that field, it's just nonstop. Every discipline has five, you know, every discipline you, you get like five to six authors that you have to read on one topic in one day. And then, you know, by the time you're, you know, talking about atonement theology in one day, come, you know, come the end of the week, you have to talk about something else because you're trying to move that on in a, in a fairly fast paced environment. It's, it's a lot to absorb. So did you have like any favorite class or anything or a topic that you studied? Uh, you know, I think my favorite class I wouldn't say it was my, like, I'm going to say constructive theology was my favorite class, mostly because it was the one that I really started to feel a sense of the, like the muscle that I developed and being able to exercise and contend with theologians. It, it gave me the courage to, to look at what, what people have written in the past and, knowing that, you know, I had previous classes kind of built up to that kind of looking through scriptural interpretation, um, understanding what the Bible is, both Old Testament, New Testament, those kind of things were before that, you know, typically in somebody's course. But by the time I got to that space, I realized that I'd had some skill sets that I could use that gave me, um, I started to feel like, yeah, I, I could read a theologian and see what was happening, understand what was happening and had the knowledge and the skill set to be able to resist or shape or think deeply about what a theologian was proposing. And, and that's, you know, that's really intimidating, right? Because we, most of us in ordinary church don't get permission to critique Bonhoeffer or to critique Niebuhr. And that's not to say that they're wrong, but to see what isn't working, say, 20 years later, and allow that theology to develop, right, in thought. And I, I think in seeing that, that gave me a lot of courage to not only exercise my own thinking and my own experiences, but it also strangely gave me a hope for the future that, you know, this isn't a dead art. It's not a, a meaningless art, and it, nor is it elite. You know, it's not just for the academic. So I think that's why it was my favorite, even though, you know, as a student, it was definitely my hardest. And, you know, there was a lot of writing, a lot of deep thinking, a lot of discussion that goes along with, you know, all the reading that we've already talked about. But immersing yourself in that is, you know, it's really grueling because you, you start to think, for one example, what does justice mean? And you know, you can sit back in your seat and have a beer and talk about it and crap on and offer your opinions because of the experiences you've had. But at the same time, you look at the history of what people have had, like seriously had to contend with. Why is justice important? Why do we call for that? And what situations, you know, what do we learn from scripture and our tradition and the experiences of others when we begin to speak about it? And you realize the ramifications for that. And it really adds to the gravity of what it means when we contemplate these very important things. Well, do you find that it's uh, it's coming through in your creative work? It, like, can we expect a, a, a theology themed album from you in the future? <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to say no. I hope not. <laughs> You're not going to write a song uh, pushing back on Niebuhr or anything like that? <laughs> you know, I 
like I haven't like I'm supposed to be songwriting this summer and I'm still somewhat creatively recovering. I'm notoriously poor at being kind of left brain, right brain. I love logic and reason, but it's also like it kills my creativity. So I have to kind of get away from thinking in bullet points and logical kind of outcomes because it changes the way I write a sentence. And it also it also makes it difficult when I want to just be able to write creatively and let just let stuff flow. And right now I'm critiquing everything, right? One of the process of, of divinity schools, you're in a kind of pretty much a constant state of critiquing and deconstructing ideas and breaking them down to their essentials. And I don't really like that when I'm writing. So I'm, I'm still actually really struggling, actually trying to get over that hump and just letting myself just free think and not worrying about the consequences of that. It's, it's not that I don't come around, I think, creatively. And I've been here before. I, would, I think it's really important in the creative process to, like as an artist, right, to just kind of let everything go and just write give way to your feelings, Luke, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. And I think, you know, once you, you get that thing there, then it's kind of after that's completed, then I consider what that means when I share it and what the implications are after that. That's all to say that, you know, they're kind of two different processes for me, one of which I'm recovering from, but I don't know that I'll ever kind of specifically write theology into my music. But at the same time, I look at my work and I see that it shows up. So there's a deep entrenchment of what my faith has done and what I anticipate when I share it with others and the kind of world I hope to shape knowing that I'm putting music inside of it. But, you know, I'm not really happy personally when I create music that's like overtly theological. I think it's kind of a turnoff for somebody who doesn't really kind of understand that. I don't don't feel like I'm losing anything if it's not specific. Right. So it seems like you have two kind of avenues in your life where you're, you're communicating words, one in more poetic form in terms of your, uh, your songwriting and another in terms of your advocacy and everything that you're doing in connection with your work there. And you, you were recently on, um, the Queerology podcast as a panel. And for those of you that listen to that podcast, the host, Matthias Roberts, always opens with a question of, you know, how do you identify and then how has that influenced your faith? And you said something in response to that that I thought was really interesting along the, the lines of language. And you you identified Christianity as a, a loose quote, I guess, as your language for the divine and how that's how you view Christianity in your life. Could you expand on that a little bit? Like, Yeah. Um yeah, you're, you've quoted that pretty well because I, I say it quite often. Um, it's tied in with culture and experience as well, I think, is one of the things that, that gets lost. Um, maybe an, an analogy would be, you know, as an American, my native tongue, right, is English. You know, I may choose to learn another language. I'm an Australian citizen as well, right? I lived in Australia for five years and frequently visit. I'm a citizen of that culture but I also understand that I'm not necessarily like there's always kind of this part where I'm not 100 percent pure Australian, even though I'm included in the family. That I guess that's all to say is that, you know, I was born in a time and a place where Christianity was what I learned. It's my native tongue. And so whenever I'm contemplating the divine, that's the place that I start. I look to other religions I look to other writers. I look to other people who have experienced their spirituality, trying to understand the divine the way that I can. But at the end of the day, I haven't, 
it would be incorrect to say that I've picked up another practice or that I have another tradition. It's always Christianity that's kind of the first place that I start. And the other things that I learn still tend to come backward and inform me in that tradition and with that language. But um, I think one of the things I also said in that, um, that discussion panel is it's, you know, Christianity, when I use that as an identifier for the spiritual process and the ties that I have to the, to the tradition, it's only the starting place. I, I feel like it's inaccurate to call it an identity <laughs> in, in a strange way, because I don't necessarily think that I am made a Christian necessarily. I am a, a being or a soul seen by God. And I think, you know, there's a certain point where I get when you think that through, right? When you think that through, what that says is somebody who isn't a Christian or doesn't have a spiritual practice with that tradition, that they're not seen and that they're not loved by God or that their spiritual practice or tradition has less value value or is somehow illegitimate. So that's kind of like one of the concerns that I have about it. But like I said, it's a starting place. And so somebody knows what, what basis I'm working from. I really appreciate that perspective. When you said it, it really, it molded my mind for, for a week or two after that. So thank you for (laughs) expanding on that. I just, sometimes I get, sometimes I get lucky and say something meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of our listeners who could relate with being born into Christianity, it being what they know. I mean, even in talking about your theology uh, degree experience, you talked about how theology is not for the elite necessarily. Like once you get into the conversation, you can see how it works in everyday people's lives. And just having permission to join the conversation and like do the work of theology and push back against stuff because it is what you've been given and it is your tradition. It's what you've grown up in. Like there's hundreds of us who are really I would say probably thousands or whatever of us trying to enter that space and feel like we have permission to, to push back against our tradition. I I think that here's where I I will sound a bit like an academic though. I mean, I think there is a responsibility that we, we should take with and care with the things that we think and the things that we teach. Right. And so I'm, I tend to be a proponent of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which sounds really nerdy, but all that means is that in terms of, of the theological work through that I do, I think about faith and this, the religious experience, I guess, on a table, like John Wesley talked about faith being on a table with four legs. It has, um, you know, logic and reason or experience, the tradition of the church and scripture kind of all each holding up a leg and that those have to be in relationship with one another, that neither one has pressed, you know, has uh, authority over another, but they're combined together to get a picture of what this, this faith experience is like. I talk about that quadrilateral because on, on one sense, the everyday theologian doesn't necessarily have the rules, right? So when we sit down and we start thinking about, you know, voicing our opinions and what we think God is, Oftentimes, you know, we're, we're leaning heavily into our experience. And I think those experiences are important. How do we maintain the validity of that? And we have to, at some point, I don't know if I'd say have to, but I, I think there's a great value at some point in having that experience go into the community, having um, experiences that kind of, a, that can, can show that that's not just a one-off experience. Uh, I don't necessarily want to call it empirical, but 
you know, we do have our unique experiences, but at the same time, I, I, what I want or what I hope for, like in my own theology is that I'm not just, you know, developing my own island and trying to create something altogether new. At some point in time, I'm hoping to find a little something true. And I, I, I tend to avoid the word truth with a capital T, but something that's earnest, right? So if I say to you that love is a beneficial thing, I'm, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty easy thing, right? Most of us would agree that love is not a destructive force, that it's a very giving, a, a fruitful force. But when I tell you, for example, the reason why I'm kicking you out of my church because you're gay is because I love you, right? That's one example that the LGBTQ community has has really tested over the last 20 some years back to the church and saying, you know, I know that this is something that you think is true in theology and how does this really pair out? How does this pair out in my experience? How does logic and reason say kicking people out of the church is an expression of love? How does scripture support that move and and there you know obviously there's been a lot of argument as um on how scripture should be interpreted interpreted on on that end and also in tradition examining our own traditions and our, our willingness you know you put those all together i don't think that's the work of the elite even though i you know that's a, like a rigor that we tend to go through in academy i guess my point is saying that that as we're having these experiences particularly as a you know if as you were talking about a lot of your audience is progressive Christianity and post evangelical. There's still, I think a lot of value in, in not just writing through an event, but examining that event, thinking through that event, putting it up against, you know, other measures and other experiences in the collective knowledge that we share. Um, I think is a process that for me personally, as a quote unquote, a lay Christian, right. And just an everyday Christian, like before divinity school, as if that somehow magically changed me, which I don't think it has. But, you know, prior to that, I'd never really been given the keys to that. I actually hypothesize this is part of progressive Christianity. We're starting to see, you know, everyday people who aren't necessarily in divinity school or seminary going, no, really, I know that this is what my pastor says. I know this is what a theologian has said, but what does scripture tell me, you know, what do other people think about it? What is my experience saying and going through that, that round? So it's not just necessarily cherry picking or trying to change something for the sake of the displeasure of how it affected you in the first place. I, I had a favorite professor that always said, like, you can feel free to move in different directions and have your opinions, but bring them into conversation with, with what is like you said, the tradition and stuff. So rather than just, Actually, what you said earlier in this conversation, you said you could just sit on your couch, drink a beer and have an opinion. But that's totally different than joining this historic larger conversation. Right. And pushing back against stuff. Anyway, it just resonated with me. <laughs> I wonder if part of it, I wonder if part of it, too, is the the, you know, the advent of technology. Right. So people being able to read the Bible with the printing press kind of expanded. But now with the Internet, we have the ability not just to read the Bible, but we have access to th- theologians that we never had before in terms of uh, other people talking about them through podcasts or blogs or whatever, but then also just, you know, open my Kindle and I can read all these books that before, if I lived, didn't live near a seminary that had a library of these books, I couldn't have access to them. So there's, I think there's that element too, where it's become more and more of an, of a everyday, every people can, can participate in that. 
also inviting different kinds of people. That professor I just quoted, she was the first woman to get a doctorate. It was like in the 50s at Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California. And we've always had one type of conversation partner in some of the academy. That's a whole nother topic. No, I, but I, Jeff, I really like what you're saying. And I have that, I have that hypothesis slash question with technology too. I mean, I think in my own experience, when I look at, you know, how I first started to get information as a Christian outside of my church was the, the local Christian bookstore. And I read so much of that stuff until I couldn't handle it anymore. Like, and it was just, it became too syrupy, like something about the offerings, and I don't want to be totally critical because there were some really amazing writers, I think, that I've read that you can find in the Christian bookstore. But it's always struck me as very interesting, you know, pre-technology, right, and pre-digital books. You never saw Niebuhr. You didn't see Bonhoeffer. Now, you can get those those authors in your local public library, but if you didn't know what they were and what to look for, it still would be difficult to do it. Now in the digital age, and I think this, I started ramping up and reading books as well. I still had to order books online, but when I got on the internet, I got, you know, I, I looked it through syllabus from uh, seminaries and divinity schools. I looked at what other people were reading. You know, Amazon was a really great source for, you know, if you like this book, you know, you might like this and you could do a search. Well, is the Bible real or something? And you can get all kinds of literature associated with that. And that, that opportunity to do that was, I think I probably started doing that uh, around 2000, I think. And by 2005, I was still ordering like analog books, but I could get access to books and authors and thinkers that you just couldn't find in your typical Christian retail store. What were some uh, like stepping stone works for you or theologians that kind of you feel stood above the rest of some of the noise that sounds pretty similar and that kind of pushed you forward in those in those ways towards, I guess, divinity school and now? Uh, yeah, I've got. Oh, I'm so excited to, to say <laughs> the answer to this. Um, uh, quite a few, actually. I, I won't be able to say all of them, but Karen Armstrong, A History of God was a revelation to me. It was the first time I had a concept of Christianity and world history in the way that we function. Um, yeah, I like the way that she handled it. It's an incredibly dense work. And as I read through it, I realized I had, I had no knowledge at all about Christianity or about what religion was or how it functioned. I spent, you know, the book in one hand and a reference book in the other, just trying to figure out what she was talking about, but I loved that book. That was groundbreaking for me. Um, that I got into uh, Dermade McCulloch's The Reformation. It's another extremely dense work. I started reading that when I was traveling in Europe, and I'm going through all of these European, you know, pre-Reformation churches, and then getting deeper into Europe and getting into Reformation churches, like in the flesh. Like I'm walking in these places, and so I read that book alongside it. And started to understand something about the complexities between the, you know, the the division between Protestant and Protestantism and Catholicism, um, and then Bart Ehrman, you know, is a biblical scholar, particularly a New Testament scholar. He definitely will challenge readers if you think the Bible is the word of God. You're not going to enjoy Bart Ehrman. There are times he comes off as a a little bit negative. I think to sacred text. But I think he deals with it in a way that I'd never seen anybody deal with the Bible before. And I've, I've, I've read tons of his work. 
deeply appreciate his biblical scholarship. And then I think the last one I'll mention was uh, Shelby Spong, uh, uh, John Shelby Spong. I read uh, Jesus for the Non-Religious, I think, um, was a book for me. These are all like kind of deconstructing my faith, right? I was kind of looking for people that were going to agree with me that what I was experiencing was a little bit of bullshit and um, wasn't the way things had always been. But what I appreciated about Spong is he gave me a way to view Christianity in a way that helped me. I actually was strangely therapeutic. I could allow my doubt knowing that I was contesting. I didn't necessarily like say, for example, I find, you know, say Noah and the Ark a really difficult thing to quote unquote believe as a fact. Those kinds of trip ups, I think, for Christianity, you know, the, the war between religion and science, quote unquote. That gave me an understanding of mythology that I, I think is really important to understand, I think, particularly as a musician, the value of even a fictional story telling you truth. I realize I just use fiction in reference to the Bible. I don't necessarily want to say that the things that I'm reading are fiction, but it released me from this obligation I felt like I had to be a card-carrying Christian and that I had to say that I believed and ticked off boxes when I just simply couldn't do it. I couldn't be honest about it. And Spong was like a gateway for me to be able to go, listen, we'll get there when we get there, but I'm still participating and I'm still here and I still understand something of the value and the truth of this. I still see the divine. What does that process mean? So yeah, those were all some extremely pivotal books for me, and I've moved on from there since. But they they were definitely gateway drugs for me. <laughs> nice, that's a, that's a good list because typically in the post evangelical space, you get the same names over and over again. So I like I like that was a great list because it stood out, and I think it'll give some a lot of our listeners some some stuff to go check out. Uh, so we'll put links on that in the show notes. That will be at irenicast.com slash one twenty five if you're interested in any of those books or authors. I have a I have a question. In the last conversation you had with us uh, on the previous time you were here for an interview, you you talked about how how churches just responded to you and were like, you know, you're you're leading other people astray. You're leading people down the wrong path. Um, they warned their people about you and stuff like that. Uh, I I've had a lot of conversations with people that listen to our show that get told the exact same thing. They're writing on a blog or they're they're starting little small groups within their churches that are just reading some of the more critical material. And they're being told by people that they're leading people astray or to hell or whatever. Maybe you don't have an answer for this, but like having been through it, what would you say to the people that are being told that, that are hearing that from their community? Yeah. I like, I mean, my tactic is just to look at people, look people in the eye and go, okay, so that's what you think. (laughs) I mean, that's not a very good answer, but, uh, you know, when I hear that, I, I will. I'll, I'll tell you what I think when I hear that. When I hear that, I think more, more so probably than I used to. I definitely see a fear of change. You know, there's nothing worse, right, than the idea of causing someone to lose their faith. I take very seriously the leadership role that I play. That if I think something and I do something and I, I'm essentially teaching something, whether I like to admit it or not, right. The fear of that is that we will not allow someone to see God. At the same time, one of the things I've always kind of tried to understand about evangelicalism, in in terms of conversion, you're trying to tell the good news to someone, right, in a way that they will accept God and turn to God. Otherwise, you know, there's a condemnation. You know, you're not going to make it into heaven. Now, I have a theological disagreement with that thought. We won't get into that. Mm -hmm. But 
that made me always kind of think about like my own doubt and my own ability to look toward the divine. And I think the concept of belief, right? If, if it's so tenuous that somebody is not going to participate, I think at some point in time, you have to understand like it is a choice for somebody to follow and look toward the divine. And if it's not a real faith that people don't stay, you can give me a convincing argument and get me to do something in a moment over a, a myriad of things. But to have a, a paradigm change, a life-changing experience, to truly see the world in a new way, you've got to own that. You've got to have an experience that's relatable to you. I understand where that fear comes from, but I also contest that we can force people into believing things that are antithetical to their own sense of being, their own health, their own unique perspective and relationship with the divine. Um, it's, it's this push against conformity that I tend to enjoy, <laughs> um, but it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. So what is a response to that? For me, in my own personal experience, what I'd say is like knowing myself in this journey, examining my own faith in this, knowing something about my own value has been so important to me surviving those episodes. I don't mean to make that sound like it's ever been easy. That doesn't mean that I haven't wept tears or cried or avoided people who talked to, talked to me that way. But I survived that because I didn't doubt the experience that I've had. There's something still here about my, my faith and my spiritual experience. Because I care, I can just reinvesting on what I hope to share is leading somebody to life, leading to somebody to fruitfulness in divinity rather than leading them to specific things that they have to believe. Because I think those are in the long run, I just think those are superficial being able to check off blocks and saying, you know, showing up and go, I'm at church every Sunday. I know what it's like to know God. And I, I don't think that that gets us what we're after. A deep and meaningful relationship with the divine is not about what you believe. <laughs> right. I, I feel like that's a really heretical, potentially heretical thing to say, right? But what I believe has very little to do with the faith that I have. Um, and there's a, there's a lovely book on that, actually, to be a little bit nerdy for adding to our reading list. Um, <laughs> Harvey Cox, Harvey Cox, uh, C-O-X, wrote a book called The Future of Faith. And he talks about this, this thing that we've done in modernity of getting tied up in between, like blurring the lines between what belief is and what faith is you know, belief in a tenant or belief in an orthodoxy, you know, belief in something tangible that has to be repeated over and over again in order for the membership to retain. Whereas faith is more of a spirit filled kind of movement, which, you know, I found his book terrifying to me personally, actually, because I had to acknowledge at some point in there that faith has a spirit that moves. And I don't tend to like, quote unquote, the spirit because <laughs> it it makes me feel like I'm out of my own control. It, it sounds religious to me. It sounds like, you know, God could do something in my life. <laughs> and it's, it's terrifying, but it, it's the distinction between that. So I, I get where it comes from, but man, I mean, I, I think there has to be some responsibility that yes, of course, that we take as teachers, as sharing our faith and what are the motives behind that. And I guess it's just, I put that back on the same people who say it you know, kind of going back to that analogy of love, like, do you, are you leading me toward the divine? Why are you cutting me off? 
Like I'm not, tr- I'm not just here to be rebellious. Um, I'm not just here to ruin other people. And I think there are some people that are, and I think that needs to be contested against. Uh, don't get me wrong on that, but you know, it is a survival thing to, to do. I think if one knows and actually has a spiritual practice and faith and an understanding them themselves and the relationship to, to the divine to lean back on. Yeah. That, Everything you just said does feel like a sort of bomb, <laughs> like that's B A L M, a bomb, <laughs> like healing. I think that's fantastic. You ju- just knowing knowing yourself, and then also recognizing that you're you're leading people into life, and that's what you care about. Like keeping that the center is. It's just so easy to get caught up in systems and stuff that that are not about life, you know, that are almost predatory and keep us checking off the boxes. So it's yeah. Sorry, my brain and heart are like flooded right now. <laughs> I, I love that you said predatory, though, because that's one of the things that I felt like I think a long time ago. And this is, you know, decades ago for me, where I, I felt a sense of the predatory behavior of evangelical Christianity was to convince me that who I was was who I should not be. And I think that's a distinctly different accusation versus who you could be and who we hope you could be in in blessing and fulfillment and peace and joy. Those are two wildly different messages. And the challenge of that is to be willing to understand something about what does it mean to share this faith has, has wildly changed the way I view, you know, I would tell you, I'm definitely not an evangelical, for example, but I don't think that that means that I share my faith any less um, strangely enough, but how I share it, the mechanisms with which I share it, the obligations as to why I share it are wildly different than what I was taught. And, you know, that's a really terrifying prospect knowing that I know that there are people inside the evangelical community who firmly believe if the truth is not told to you at a specific time and a specific place, you may die today. And that was on you to get that person into heaven. Right. And I'm a product of that. I, I have to admit that I'm a product of that. You know, I was evangelized to, I was converted, I gave my life to Christ because of hearing those speeches. But I also, when I look back, it wasn't just those speeches and it wasn't just that care. It was that there, people had shown me some scripture that I had read that I started to contemplate. I started to pray toward God. I started to try and understand this thing that was being told to me that you have value and that you have worth and that God loves you. You know, I started to think about that and, you know, like you're saying, you hear this and you mull over it again and again and again. And I really started to say uh, almost, I actually became a Christian almost on a dare toward God, like change my life. I dare you. Like there's no way that this thing's going to work out. Well, my life has been radically changed because of that experience. At the same time, I think that's that's part of how do we share and how do we love? And I just think there's a massive difference between selling someone, pitching somebody, convincing someone rather than developing relationships with people, sharing. You know, my faith is something that I will gladly share with other people. You know, it, it's important. Um, it's important to me. It's been important to other people that I know. If it's something that can be important and meaningful to you, if you can find something about your divine worth, then why would I not be there to participate with that with you? 
is just dramatically different than telling somebody, wow, you're on a wrong path. You're going to hell. I'm carrying you for, you know, turn a burn baby. You know, it's, it's just, <laughs> and I, I think that's a lot of like what most of us I think have experienced inside of post evangelicalism is just going, man, here's something meaningful that's happened in our life. And there's something kind of untoward that happens when we try to force our hand onto somebody else without telling the whole story, without opening the door to allow the gospel to be the experience of love and compassion. I think that it was meant to be. That's really good. I mean, obviously it sounds like you've done a lot of work in terms of reconciling just your, your own personal experiences of, of your past and your present and where that leads you into the future. Uh, the last time we talked, you were, we talked a little bit about that in terms of your career. You know, you made that definitive marker of career 1.0 and career 2.0 from CCM into uh, where you are now as a recording artist. And I sensed uh, a bit of a hesitation when it came to your career 1.0 material in terms of performing it and stuff like that. But it seems as though now you're ready to head into a tour where you're going to be doing a lot more of that. Uh, <laughs> that that first part of your career music and and I'm curious like what changed or has has that part of your life been reconciled a little bit more where you're more comfortable putting that out there like what is what is a catalyst for wanting to kind of revisit some of that material uh you know I think there are two things I think I think one I would say that I understand the relationship of my career 1.0 stuff and and my career 2.0 stuff like I'm I now know how to tell my own story a little bit better to to kind of help understand the distinction between when I'm having a, like a conversation like today, this is, you know, it's in a place, it's in a room with people who understand what we're talking about in terms of faith. But when I go out to a bar, I don't do that. You know, I, I try not to do that. Uh, sometimes my audience does demand that that happens, but you know, I'm not having conversations about what it's like to be spiritual or religious or in Christianity. I do that when I go to churches, when I go and do advocacy work. Um, they're kind of two different kinds of professions that I have, so to speak. I understand that a little bit more. But as an artist, um, I have been like kind of playing bits and pieces. I probably do, do two or three old songs a night. I probably, I usually try when I go out and do a show to do at least something from every record, which the older I get, the longer my shows get. Um, but the other part of that is that the audience has almost demanded that the tour that I'm doing this fall and into next spring is called the Kansas and back around tour, which are the bookend records that I currently have in my whole career. Um, the fans named that and that's Basically, a great name, by the way. I love that. Really? I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like it. At this point, I find it problematic because I'm not doing any shows in Kansas at the moment. But <laughs> I'm working on that because I, I just feel like that needs to happen. The The set that I'll be doing this fall, so I'll be doing you know one set in the front with career 2.0 stuff. I'll be playing a lot from the Love Comes Back Around record, taking an intermission, and then doing as much as I can from the career 1.0 stuff. And that's kind of evolved from the online shows that I've been doing in the middle of divinity school. So I hadn't been touring a lot, you know, in the, in the flesh and outside. So I was doing a series called uh, second Thursdays, which is exactly what it sounds uh, on every second Thursday, I would do a live show online, um, which I still am doing periodically, not as regularly as I've been. Yeah. And through that, we'd cycled through all of the records in their entirety and realized like, just not on an artistic level, fans like the music when you play it. <laughs> like I remember going to a Bonnie Raitt show 10 years ago and I'm like, 
please, please, please play one or two songs from the 70s. You know, it's it's right. 2010. Why would she play something that's 40 years old? But I'm desperate. Like, that's why I came to see Bonnie Raitt. And so I'm like, I have to acknowledge, like, that's why fans also come to see. They want to be able to share that that music, that experience. I'm able to do that today largely because my audience has actually helped nurtured me back into that place. Understanding that music is part of the soundtrack of our lives and the music that I've created is a part of a soundtrack of many of my audience members' lives too. I just don't want to be in a p- position of denying that. It's a beautiful thing to experience. It's a wonderful thing to enjoy. They've resurrected some music for me that I, I resisted playing for a really long time. And at the same time, like I've also learned that there are pieces that I won't play and we've had to come to an agreement on one or two things that I might not do. But I'm surprised how much has remained and how meaningful that is. So, yeah, it's an honor and a privilege to do that. I, I, I hope that people do understand the intermission between the secular, conver- you know, the secular entertainment and conversation, just ordinary life that, you know, it's like, hey, man, we're not doing church all the time, you know a hundred hours a day, but it still shows up in what we were due, but just, you know, and then moving on to the next thing. I was thinking about that exact thing uh, before we went into this interview, how your music was a part of my teenage years. And there's so much about that, that you like, you'll never know. You created that music, you set it out into the world and it, it just attached itself to so many different things. And like, it's just kind of weird. I mean, I, I, I like I'm sitting, standing in my living room. There's huge windows open. I have all this stuff happening, and there's like a CD playing on the CD player that mom had. She had bought a bunch of Christian CDs, and your music's playing through. And us three boys are like singing along to it, like getting our football gear together. I don't know. There's just like weird things that uh that that it that it connects to. And I can ma- I can imagine as an artist creating something and then just setting it out into the world to like let it do its thing must be kind of a weird experience. Yeah, it's very bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, yeah, it's strange to like, you know, have a live show that you're doing on any given night, like somebody shows up and they're fulfilling a bucket list or, um, but I think, right. you know, at the same time, like, I think that story you told was a connection for connection point for me. I mean, that was, I was taught that. And like I had somebody, an audience member made that connection for me when I said, listen, I I don't really feel comfortable. And some people were like, there are some things you might want to challenge yourself to get over Jen, because I'm pretty sure that you have a soundtrack to your life too. You know? And like you're saying, like I remember cruising down main street in Chinook, Kansas in my cousin's T-top Camaro, listen to the B 52s and singing (laughs) love shack as at the top of my lungs. Like, and imagine going to the B-52s and then doing a show and saying, would you please play this? And they went, screw you. No, we're not going to play it. I don't care about your life and your memories. <laughs> <And they're> like, <laughs> it, it would be devastating, you know? So to figure out a way to be a part of that, I mean, that's what music does. It keeps us going and it helps us make our memories. And it's a privilege to be a part of that. So to do that as earnestly as I can has always been my goal. And it's, it's taught me some lessons along the way. It's allowed me to connect to people in ways that I would resist because I was just too scared or, you know, not willing to do the hard work of, of letting my yes be my yes and my no be my no for the right reasons that I was, you know, willing to have, you know, assigned to my name. Wow. As an artist, do you have a bucket list, a venue you want to play at or an artist you would love to play with? That's a good question. Um, I suppose a bucket list is the, the language that people use. I wouldn't say that because I don't necessarily want it fulfilled. I'm really <laughs> happy to 
just with the fantasy. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I mean, there, there are two artists that, like, when I was growing up and singing to on the radio all the time that I fantasized about touring with was uh, Tracy Chapman mm. and um, Natalie Merchant. Oh, and, yeah. like, I'd go to that concert. That, <laughs> man, part of that, like, I want to be, I just want to be a backup singer, actually. I don't want to be on the, the proscenium, the front of proscenium at all. Like, I want to be in the back corner on a microphone just singing with. And, like, that's part of the fantasy is not having to be Jennifer Knapp, the musician responsible for carrying the room, but being a part of the music that's happening on stage that has been so meaningful to me. So th that's why those guys are on my quote unquote bucket list. But I think if somebody gave me the opportunity to right now, I would, I turn into Jojo, the idiot circus boy. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to talk when I meet people that I deeply admire. So like, I just go, Hey man, I like your work. And I get all goofy and I don't know what to say. And I just don't feel very like, I, I just don't know if I'd ever have the courage to take it up. Even if I, somebody asked me to do it. That's a great reference, by the way. <laughs> That's, isn't that a, from Tommy boy, Tommy boy. And yeah. then when you said that, I thought of Chris Farley in the SNL interview that he did where like with Paul McCartney, where he's like, remember, remember that one, that one thing. And it was just that, just being in oh, awe of the person they were interviewing. Time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've done a couple podcasts like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not you guys. Everybody who listens to me that's ever done a podcast interview is like, was it me? Was it me? <laughs> like, no, that's great. Um, in in terms of kind of moving forward with uh, your music career, you also have some uh, Christmas stuff that you're doing again with uh, Margaret Brecker. How has that experience been the first time around? And then, I mean, I'm sure you're excited to do it again, but uh, what's going to be different and how, how has that creative relationship evolved? Yeah. So in, in 2012, which, oh my God, that's a long time ago. Um, 2012, Margaret Becker and I released a record called The Hymns of Christmas, and it's still available. Pretty much, I am of the opinion that you do one Christmas record, and that's pretty much it. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's not a hell of a lot of Christmas music out there to do that's a, right. a public domain. Um, but, you know, every year, we've done some light touring of it over the years. We're going to go do some live shows this year, largely in the upper Midwest and uh, I'm not exactly sure where else and we'll do an online show as well. So anyone interested in seeing uh, Margaret and Becker and I perform outside of the four or five venues that we've got booked, which I would say is most of America, you can log on to concertwindow.com forward slash Jennifer Knapp and you'll see all the live shows that I've got going on. But anyway, so we'll do a live show, but yeah, the, we did the record because I love the hymns. Like I'm not, I'm not really into like all the sparklies and the jinglies. It's actually like for me, the Christmas worship season is next to Easter, which is probably why those are the two times of the year. I definitely go to church. <laughs> but um, uh, Yeah. So we did the hymns and so those are public domain, right? So we're also doing it on the cheap. We just didn't have a lot of money to like record, you know, like Ray Stevens's grandma got run over by a reindeer or something. <laughs> so uh, what we did, this year, this summer, actually, Margaret and I have been working on writing some new songs. So we're going to put out a little EP around about Christmas time, um, play those new songs live, but also, you know, we'll put them up in digital format somewhere. We've got a we've got a song called um, "Come On Amazon," which is basically replacing Santa Claus with Amazon.com, and another one uh, called "The Family Survival Guide of Christmas," which is set to the tune of the Twelve Days of Christmas. 
So uh, we thought that would be a little handy, uh, helpful hints to uh, surviving how to get through the holidays with uh, those of us who are in challenging social situations come winter. And then I've got it. I'll I'll be putting an original tune of my own out there uh, about a story about my grandfather and and how I used to grow up and uh, uh, and how he said, you know, just keep me believing in Santa Claus. So. So lovely stuff to look forward to. So yeah, the the way to look for that is we'll, we put out all the notices and stuff on jennifernap.com. So we'll keep you informed if you show up in those places. Sounds good. And can, you're continuing the, the second Tuesday concerts going forward when you can? Yeah, when I can. I mean, I, I plan on doing them every month. Uh, we'll see how it goes this fall because I'm touring a lot. I don't anticipate doing too much. I've got to hunker down and uh, do some songwriting in the middle of that somewhere as well. But, you know, I'm definitely a regular online performer. So, you know, they're happening at a relatively frequent basis. Um, so if there is one on, it will always be on the second Thursday of the month. Um, but I, I didn't get to say, though, like, I, I absolutely love Margaret. I mean, she's an incredibly talented musician. I would have loved to have known her in my CCM days. I mean, I, she was one of those people that I met back in the day where I could hardly talk to her because I really admired her work. And so I found it really intimidated, not by any cause of hers, but I found it intimidating to kind of develop a relationship and, and get to know like a female artist that I really admired. I mean, she's, she's not only talented, but she's had a lot of experience in that genre. And I've enjoyed that and some of the debrief over the years of that ex- sharing that experience with her. And some days we just reminisce about what that experience is like and the things that we experienced as women, the things that we experienced evangelically and um, theologically as well has been fantastic. But the other thing I'll say is that, you know, one of the reasons why I'm extraordinarily proud of Margaret is she's actually been doing a lot of producing over the last few years with projects. And as anyone who pays attention to the music scene, there are not a lot of women doing that work and let alone in Nashville. So I'm I'm really proud of her. Like she's, she's really getting involved in the industry behind the scenes in some ways um, and working with other artists in ways that um, I'm, I'm just really honored to know that she's reinvesting back into the craft. Oh, that's really great. I didn't realize that she was doing so much behind the scenes work with other artists. That's great. And now, yeah, I told her this year, like she's, uh, in the past on the hymns of Christmas record, we kind of went at it together um, and produced the record, you know, both of us kind of collaborating. But after the songwriting, I said, Nope, Margaret, it's your turn. You're going to produce this record. I'm going to sit back and just be an artist and you're going to tell me what to do. Uh, I, I'm not sure what her response is to that yet, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure she's pretty happy to go with that. So, I mean, her, her skill set in the studio is, is really delightful to be able to work with and, Man, the second that she picks up a guitar, I'm just like, I don't ever want to play again. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did that relationship uh, come to fruition? Like, how did you two connect? We, we knew each other like a long time ago. Um, like we had done a couple co-writes together. Some, you know, industry people are like, oh, you and Margaret, you know, hey, little Jen Knapp, you need to go know wise woman, Margaret Becker, and do some songwriting together. And you know, we did a little bit of that, and I think we did a couple of gigs at, at the same place. But um, skip ahead probably 10 years. I, I mean, after this kind of initial things where, like I said, I didn't really develop a relationship with her. It wasn't until I got back into town that I got a, a phone call from her just saying, listen, I hear you're back in town. You could probably use a friend or two. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I really could. So, um, yeah, just 
started, you know, hanging out and we, you know, hung out for a couple of years and then we're talking about how yeah, we should, we'd always kind of talked about doing some work together um, just for fun and didn't really know what to do. And that's how the Christmas project started, just kind of looking for ways to, you know, to j- enjoy each other's company musically as well as socially. Nice. So I've noticed over the past few months, uh, you've, you've become somewhat of a, of a chef. I've, you've put up some stuff on Instagram of some of the stuff you've cooked and put together. And I noticed that you also started sous vide Is this correct? Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. Somebody gave me that for a birthday or a Christmas or something. This isn't a piece of technological equipment I would not have purchased for myself, but some, since somebody did, and I got to tell you, I do ribs this way now. It is, it is, utterly changed my life. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff is kind of an evangelist on that front. So <laughs> I think it's the greatest kitchen invention ever in the history of the world. As far as I'm concerned and Turkey, I like, yeah. like one Thanksgiving, I got a, a whole Turkey. Like we're just a two person household. It's like a 15 pound Turkey. I'm like, what the hell <laughs> I'm do with this massive bird? So I learned to butcher the whole bird. I made roulades out of the thigh meat. I deboned the whole thing. And then I sous vide. If you sous vide a turkey breast, you will have the most, you will love turkey again. It's not dry. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And plus like on like, like when I do the ribs, for example, I chuck my ribs in my dry rub. They cook for eight hours in a pot. I turn it on. I don't think about it. The next morning when I'm ready, I pull them out. And then when I'm ready to barbecue, I just heat them up on the grill. And oh, my God, are they delicious. <laughs> it's the greatest thing in the world. That's awesome. <laughs> it is. It is. I keep saying, like, if I had to do another profession, like right now, if you made me, I'd probably want to go to culinary school or, or to be a chef. But, man, that is a hard job. No right? way, man. Yeah. It's terrible. So for now, it's like it's it's like creative hobby for me. Really, I, I love cooking. I love being able to have the time to do it. And my pants size shows that I like. <laughs> well, so. That's great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, man. If you have it, I'm going to put in the show notes what a sous vide is and where you can get one. I recommend the Anova or the Jewel. But I ha- yeah, I, have, I think I have the Anova. Um, what do you? What's your favorite thing to cook, Jeff? Like, what do you? What is your like go to sous vide thing? My go-to right now is tri-tip. We live in the central coast of California, so tri-tip's kind of a big deal. And it's it's never – you know, it's an art to get it right straight up on the grill. But if I can just throw it in the sous vide in the morning and then by the evening – because it's typically a rough piece of meat anyway. And then just sear the outside on the grill to get that smokiness. It, it, it slices beautifully and I, I love it. That's That's my go-to. And here's the thing for people, if you don't know what a sous vide is, it's basically a water bath. It's temp- it goes up to a certain, you put a, a like a probe basically in it <laughs> that heats the water to a specific temperature and it stays at that temperature. And so when you cook your meat or whatever you cook in it, it never, it reaches a stasis. So it never overcooks or undercooks and you can keep it that way until you're ready to heat it up. So like in the steak that Jeff is talking about, you can cook up the, 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 the temperature of the steak that you want and all you want to get that caramelization from the fat and everything on the grill, you just be able to chuck it on the grill for a couple of minutes and you're not overcooking your meats. It's, it's fantastic. We do, you know, we've done veg- vegetables that way as well. But um, for me, my favorites, like big pieces of historically dry proteins that are just so hard to cook. The sous vide is just 
like so easy to do. Right. I've never been able to cook a pork chop correctly before sous vide. I always dried it out or it was like too raw and then I put it back on and it would dry out again. So that's another one of my go-tos as well. It's also great for mashed potatoes. You just put the cream and the butter in there Ooh, and then it's shut perfect. Up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, let's, so let's see an Instagram post with the perfect mashed potatoes. One of you's got to upload it. I'll, see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely give you a shout out, Jeff, when that happens. <laughs> that would be so awesome. That. It never occurred to me to do that. To just well, like because now I'm already thinking like like ways that I haven't done. It. It's like I love um, mashed sweet potatoes. What we do mm. a lot in my our family, and they just take 45 minutes sometimes, right, to cook in the oven which is fine. I like the caramelization and stuff that you get on the skin, but I can just see just chucking them in the the thing overnight. They're nice and warm and they're ready to go at the end of the night. It's like the modern crock pot. Right. And you so can infuse amazing. those flavors. Like if you with sweet potatoes, you do maple syrup and chipotle. It's got that sweet, spicy. Oh, it's so good. Woo! So good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I know who's going to start a cooking show now. I was going to say, let's just turn into a cooking show. It did a little bit. It did. <laughs> Jeff and I, we're ditching you, mate. You should do it. <laughs> I'll watch. While eating like potato chips or something. Loudly on a microphone. Oh, that's great. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much uh, for joining us. How can we, aside from all the stuff that we've mentioned, is there is your website the best go-to spot to, to connect everyone with the work that you're doing and what you have coming on? Yeah, absolutely. JenniferNapp.com. That's got all the social media and Twitter and schedules and things like that. Um, that's a place to start. And the other thing that I would direct people's attention to is the nonprofit that I started called Inside Out Faith dot um, org is the website. Uh, and that's just the LGBTQ advocacy I'm doing. So the events that we're doing or any public speaking I'm doing in faith based communities, you'll find it there. That'd be great. We'd love to have you come back sometime and talk exclusively at that. Or if there's a theological issue you just want to explore and have a conversation about our platform is yours. We would love to have those conversations. <laughs> yeah, we can get dirty theological sometime. It'll be, be awesome. I'd love to hear more about your nonprofit at some point. Cause we, we did, you know, you did talk previously about how there are some churches and faith communities that just don't have any exposure to people who are kind of comfortable sharing their stories and stuff like that. So that's just, that's huge for the circles I run in right now. Well, what was the nonprofit called? I want to write it down. Yeah. Inside outfaith.org. Thank you so much. No worries. And like all the other links, we will make sure to put that in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 25. That's irenacast.com slash 25. And there you'll find all the other information on how to get a hold of Alan and I and see what we're doing. Uh, if you have anything to add to this conversation or anything you'd like to say, you can do that at, also at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 25. And uh, again, Jennifer, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the show again. We really appreciate having your voice as a part of the conversation. So thank you. Hey, you guys. I like to say now, always a pleasure. 